I want to say what a blessing it is to come over here, even if it's for a short time, and fellowship again with the believers in God's truth over in this part of the world. I want to assure you that God is really blessing there at uh, Heartland College. I've been so happy with the young people that have come there this year, the freshman intake. There is a really dedicated group of young people and they've come from various parts of the world, as is always the case. Uh, and uh, I believe God is just building up these young people. I would say so far, and we're well into the second half of the school year now, we've not had as strong a spiritual thrust before as we've had with so little interruptions to that with the young people. I'm glad that at least a couple of our students, uh, one of the past is here. Cindy, do they know you? Cindy Harriman. How many of you know Cindy? She was one of the very first students when Heartland opened for the very first year in 1983. And we had the privilege of her living in our home. So you can imagine, I was so thrilled to see them come in here today. I didn't know they were over here in England. I not long ago got some communication from them in the States, so wasn't expecting to see them here. But I'm glad that they are here today. And Reggie Wright, Reggie, as you know, has had the sad experience of the loss of his father just a little while ago and brought him back here, had to leave Heartland, but um, kept him out of, out of classes. And I know that all of us want to wish Reggie and his family God's comforting blessings uh, in this sorrowful time. And... Uh, Reggie, I want you to pass that on to the other members of the, the family that uh, though we don't mourn in the same way as others, yet nevertheless these losses are very, very hard to take. And it tells us we're still in the land of the enemy. Um, they're just the sad experiences that we face this, this side of the kingdom. And Brother Harriman told me that just three weeks ago he lost his mother. There's a lot of sadness here. And yet soon the joy of an eternal life where there's no risk of anything like this happening. That's what we're looking for, aren't we? That's the hope and the goal of each one of us here. By the way, at the door we have um, some of our Heartland World Mission um, reports. You're welcome to take a copy of each of these to see what is happening this afternoon. I'm going to tell you a little. I, I was just overwhelmed this morning riding down in the car with Roger and Jean Rose and I read for the first time three letters that just came into Heartland from, well, two of them are from Nigeria and one is from the Cameroons. Uh, 
in Africa. And those of you that were camp meeting in the summer will remember some of the things that were happening. With, how many of you remember the stories of Sister Regina and what was happening there, that were at the camp meeting and, and heard them? Well, that work is going on, and one of these letters is from Sister Regina. Another one is from Pastor Joshua Ugo, who is the pastor, the Pentecostal pastor from um, the Grace of God Ministries, and he's seeking to bring all the other 18 ministers under his supervision and the members of all those churches into the Advent faith. And I tell you, it's thrilling just to hear what he's doing over there in, this, in the letters that he has presented. He and Sister Regina have caught up with each other, so they now know each other, even though they're coming from entirely different strands of, um, of the Christian movement. But both are being united in this, this faith. I'm going to also tell you about the um, group that Sister Regina has raised up there. She had an evangelistic crusade in a place where the Roman Catholics had driven them out every time they tried to have an evangelistic crusade. But she found a way to get through. And now they have about 80 people meeting each Sabbath. And it's growing, as she says, every week. It's growing. We're sending over a, um, a team for an extension, a Heartland College extension program over in Nigeria this summer. And we're expecting about 70 or 80 of these former priests and nuns and a few others to be present there at that extension program. So it's something we're looking forward to. And... Uh, Recently, they've received a lot more literature that we sent. That's been the beauty of this, that people have said, well, you're sure it's going to get to them? As far as we know, every single thing that we've sent has got there. Well, why shouldn't it? We pray that the angels are going to protect it. So why shouldn't it get there? Anyway, that's for this afternoon. Now I want to start on the issue of salvation. I was interested to read in the encounter for... January, or the first volume anyway of this year, that the theme is one that I want to take up here. What must we do to be saved? <clears throat> there is no question that Christ left us a clear picture of how to be saved. But there is also no doubt that Satan has put a counterfeit salvation before us. There are many strands of the counterfeit, but it takes a very common, predictable pathway. <clears throat> it's a pathway that can take us back to Eden. When Satan said, thou shalt not surely die. It certainly takes us back to Babylon where the beginnings of the formation of this deception took place. And through Babylon, down through Phoenicia, into Egypt, and through into the Greek Empire and the Roman Empire, and as you know through pagan Romanism, it began to invade Christianity. And right there in the early stages of Christianity, by the second century, and sometimes before, that invasion was becoming very strong through the Alexandrian school of 
Christian training there in North Africa. And in that Alexandrian school you had people um, like Justin Martyr, Origen, Clement of Alexander. And these men started to make it plain that they would not study the Bible except it was through the filter of Greek philosophy, which means Greek paganism. And so obviously Greek paganism began to flood in. And you remember that was a basis of the corrupting of the old manuscripts in the Western Roman Empire and the basis for much apostasy that was to expand and to develop. On the other hand, you had that powerful bastion for truth over there in, in, in um, Syria, which became the great bastion of Christianity. It's hard to believe that today, isn't it, with the way the Muslims have taken over that part of the world. But you remember after the destruction of Jerusalem, many of the faithful Christians, where did they go? You remember they were to flee out of Jerusalem. And by the grace of God, God opened a window of time for them to escape and follow his command to get out of Jerusalem. They escaped. But where did they go? Well, history attests to the fact that most of them went up to Antioch in Syria. And they became the opponents of this apostasy over there in Antioch, uh, in uh, over there in Alexandria. And so you had the faithful people there in Antioch of Syria opposing the apostasies that were coming in through Alexandria. And you remember by the third century that wonderful leader of the Antiochian Christians, Lucian, became the one that did everything he could to turn back the tide against what was happening in the introduction of paganistic concepts into the Christian church. Lucian himself died a martyr at the age of 62, but not after having brought great strength to the word of God and preserving the, uh, the uncorrupted text of the scripture. That's why the Syrian text, or what... Um, we comes down to us today as the received text is so important because they kept it inviolate. Now it's true that later the Muslims took over that area. And nevertheless, we have to thank the Eastern Christian Church for its stalwart strength for Christianity. We cannot gauge the actual impact of each one of these um, men who followed through the principles of the Western Alexandrian corrupted Christianity, but of course that eventually influenced Rome and Rome became the dominant force in the Western Christian church. It was through them that the Sabbath was changed to Sunday, that the concept of immediate life after death, all those kind of pagan concepts came in. On the other hand, um, it was through the Western Church that the Sabbath was preserved. That's why down in, in Ethiopia they were Sabbath keepers because the Muslims stopped the Roman Church from getting down there to pervert that Christianity. 
And of course, that's why the church in India, the Christian church in India, in China, in, in Siberia, and so on, were all Sabbath-keeping Christians because Rome was not able to get there because the Muslim wall stopped it. But after that broke out and the, missionary, the, the uh, Catholic missionaries were able to get to India and to other places, you remember they again, by force of the Inquisition, forced uh, men and women to worship on the false day of worship. But it was the principles of salvation that I want to um, focus on here. You think of how it started and how it came in and how it entered into Protestantism to the Evangelical and the Reformed churches. And then you understand why we are where we are today in the Christian understanding of salvation. I've often said, and I have said it over here in England, that the one that most forcibly brought the pagan concepts into the Christian church was Augustine, Bishop of Hippo, in the 4th, 5th century. Augustine, as some of you will remember, it was a Manichaeist. The Manichaeistic religion tried to marry together the old Persian religion of Zoroastrianism with Christianity. You can't put a pagan religion with Christianity. The two are absolutely... Uh, ununitable. There's no way to bring them together. You try to put them together and you still have paganism. You remember that Augustine was brought up a Manichaeist and therefore he had those pagan concepts of an absolute God that would never allow choice or decision. And a God that uh, therefore gave us no strength to have victory over sin and so he brought in the concept of pre- destination and of original sin. Those two errors have permeated Christianity today and form the basis of the false uh, views of salvation. Because like good uh, logicians that they were, they had to bring everything to bear to measure up and to be consistent with those errors. For example, once you believe in predestination, you've got to believe in once saved, always saved. Because God doesn't change and he is ordaining whether you're saved or whether you're not saved. And this brought in the terrible, disgraceful uh, misrepresentation of the character of God. You put that predestination together with eternal burning torment that God um, creates men and women or little babies and those little babies if they die unbaptized they're going to burn forever and ever and ever in excruciating agony can you imagine that can you imagine anyone teaching that can you imagine anyone putting forth such an abominable combination how could you say God is love? If God would take innocent children, they could live for a moment and then they'd burn for eternity. That came in as a result of Augustinian perversion or paganistic perversions. There's no way you can put those two together. If that's the kind of God, he'd be vastly a greater monster than Satan. 
But I believe that my God is a God of love. I believe that his whole desire is to save every human being. Do you believe it? Do you believe that he wants to save you for the kingdom of heaven? If you don't, there's not much use being here today. You don't believe that God loves you. After all, you think of the wonderful text. I am not willing that any should perish. Some of you have heard me tell of the consternation I had when I was preaching back in 1974 up there at the um, Camp Hill Church in Birmingham. And this woman at the end of the sermon, after everyone else had left the sanctuary, she raced as it almost raced to the door. She didn't want me to leave. Everyone else had gone. And she said uh, she'd enjoyed the sermon, but God cannot save me. It's a Pauling, what kind of theology is that? What kind of misrepresentation of God is that? That God couldn't save her. Now, the whole of what we're going to say here is predicated on the fact that God is not in the business of trying to keep us out of heaven. He sent his son that all of us might have eternal life. That's the reason. God wants to save us all. But that doesn't mean all will be saved. Doesn't even mean a majority will be saved. But I'm telling you this, that if we're lost, we are responsible for being lost. God has done everything that we might be saved. And he's offered all the needs that we have for that salvation. Augustine also believed in original sin. He believed that he couldn't have victory over sin. And that was obvious from his life. Therefore, Augustine had to bring other things to bear. If we're guilty for someone else's sin, namely Adam's sin, then obviously we have to recognize that Um, everyone is guilty just because he's a descendant of Adam. Now, that doesn't mean we don't inherit the weaknesses of Adam. That doesn't mean that we don't inherit fallen or sinful nature. Of course we do. But the Bible is plain on that point. A man, a father will not die for the sins of his son. Let's have a look at it in Ezekiel 18. Verse 20, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father, neither shall the father bear the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. So we die for our own sin, not for the sin of someone else. God evaluates our response to his saving power and his salvation principles. Now, if we come over to Exodus 32, we'll see how God explained that to Moses. When Moses had wanted to die, if it was not possible to save Israel, 
You notice in verse 31, Exodus 32, 31, and Moses returned unto the Lord and said, All this people have sinned a great sin and have made them gods of gold. Yet now, if thou wilt forgive their sins, and if not, blot me, I pray thee, out of thy book which thou hast written. And the Lord said unto Moses, Whosoever hath sinned against me, him will I blot out of my book. I can't blot you out for someone else's sin, the one that sinned is responsible. You see, each one of us has the opportunity to respond to the saving grace of God. And we have the privilege here today to look at those saving principles. How are we saved? Now there are many ideas of salvation. Some of them are being canvassed in our church today. But I want to look at what the Bible says. Brethren, it doesn't matter what I say. It doesn't matter what someone else says. It doesn't matter what someone writes. The only way we can understand salvation is through the clear, plain word of God. As we look at the way this came through down into the Reformation. By the way, there are many other things that were added to this by Augustine. Once you say God doesn't, uh, rather man cannot have victory over sin. He has original sin and he's a sinner not because he sins but because he's born. You know, the old statement, we sin because we're sinners. In other words, because of our nature. Um, we're not sinners because we sin. You get away from a very interesting principle of salvation. As I remember seeing one man preaching and he put on the board um, this big S-I-N and little S-I-N-S. And he started off by saying, we do, we, we do not sin, uh, or our sins don't make us sinners. That's right. He said, our sins don't make us sinners. Well, I don't know what else makes you a sinner if it's not your sins. He said, we sin because we are sinners, because we have original sin. Well, there's no question we have a natural predisposition to sin, but that's what the power of God is for, to transform and recreate the image of man into the image of God. Not into the physical image, but into the spiritual image of God. That's what we're dealing with here. Now, as we look at that principle of sin... The Bible is plain. Sin is what? Is it an act or is it something that a state? Sin is the is transgression an act? Of course it is. Sin is the transgression of the law. 
It's not sins are the transgression of the law. Sin is the transgression of the law. That's the principle that we have to, to understand. Now this led the reformers into all sorts of problems. For example, the reformers were influenced by Augustine. Remember that Luther was an Augustinian monk. And he kept every single, virtually every single Augustinian heresy and immediately after Augustine. For example, they had to say that Christ had a different nature from us. Otherwise he'd be a sinner if we believe in original sin. That's how that came about. And then, of course, they had the problem, how do you escape original sin? Well, uh, eventually it was through baptism. All right, let's take baptism. Um, we're baptised and what happens if you're not baptised? Eternal burning torment. Can you imagine what that did to the parents of little ones that had died when they heard that kind of a doctrine? So immediately they had to thrust themselves into this baptism for infants. That's not a minor situation. This issue of baptism is part of this heresy. This infant baptism is part of this, this heresy. Eventually it led to the Immaculate Conception concept of Roman Catholicism. But none of these principles are in the Bible. They come out of taking a premise and then bringing everything to bear upon that premise. And brethren, we don't follow the leadings of men. We follow the dictates of God. Can you say amen to that? We follow his word on these very important issues. Well, that led Luther, of course, to see no value for salvation in sanctification. Now, why did he see no value for salvation in sanctification? What was the reason for it? Well, it's because by this time the Roman Catholics had put a concept of, of sanctification which was a non-biblical concept. The Roman Catholics had equated the uh, principles of uh, sanctification with sacraments, the sacraments of the church. That's what they debated at the Council of Trent. I hope all of you have or will, if you haven't got it now, read the article that I had in the December issue of our firm foundation. Um, lessons from the Council of Trent. Remember, December of last year was the 450th anniversary of the convening of the Council of Trent in 1545. And in that convention, they decided that sanctification was part of the gospel. Now, the Protestants had said, no, it's got nothing to do with salvation. It's a good principle, but it's not part of salvation or of the gospel of salvation. And some of the bishops were favourable to that view, but eventually by majority vote and by papal um, efforts, they voted that the gospel, the Roman Catholics voted that the gospel was justification and sanctification. Now some say those that believe that are therefore Roman Catholic. We better be careful about that. We better know what they, they are teaching, why they are teaching it. 
because theirs was a work-oriented sanctification. And many Christians today think sanctification means good works. I want to tell you that sanctification doesn't mean good works. That's not the meaning of sanctification. What is the simple meaning of sanctification? One word. Holiness. That's what it means. Now the holy person will obviously be characterized by good works. A sanctified per- You're never going to see a sanctified person rolling drunk in the gutter, are you? Are you? You're not going to worry about where your wallet is with your, when you're fellowshipping with sanctified people. You're not going to fear that you might be pickpocketed or something. If I had 10,000 sanctified people around me, would I worry about my wallet? Of course not. You're not fearing you're going to be mugged or even killed when you're with sanctified people. And if you've got a need or a problem, you know there's going to be someone there to help you. That's just the way it is with sanctified holy people. But sanctification doesn't mean good works. It means holiness. Men and women that have Jesus fully and completely resident in their hearts. That's what it means. Of course, Luther taught that same doctrine, including infant baptism. Do you realize how many thousands that men like Luther and Zwingli and so on killed of the Anabaptists because they believed in adult consent baptism? This was one of the great tragedies. In fact, that was a thing that brought one level of unity between Luther and the papists. They agreed together that it was a denial of the faith to refuse to baptize infants. By the way, that was the way into the church and, it was, and they believed in the, the joining together of church and state. There are many things that in the Protestant Reformation were very wrong beside the wonderful things that we can say amen to. Men like Luther and Zwingli and Calvin strongly believed in the unity of church and state. They just changed horses. The princes still had the power. The dukes and the, the, the kings and emperors, the only difference was they wanted it to enforce the Protestant concepts rather than the Roman Catholic concepts. And it was because both Lutherans and Roman Catholics agreed on this point that Charles V was able to pass a law saying that all parents who refused to have their children baptized would be put to death. Now there are a lot of things that the Protestants and the Christians disagreed on but it wasn't on that point. So here, this issue of, uh, of infant baptism was an important part of, uh, of this idea, of the whole principle of, of church and state and also the principles of salvation. 
So here, this issue of, uh, of infant baptism was an important part of, uh, of this idea, of the whole principle of, of church and state and also the principles of salvation. The Roman Catholics, of course, believed that the seven sacred sacraments were necessary for salvation, and they voted that at the Council of Trent. And uh, so baptism and penance and uh, bapti uh, baptism and confirmation and so on, those seven sacred sacraments had to be fulfilled for salvation. The Protestants said, no, it's by justification alone. Now we're getting that in the Protestant world today. All we need is justification. They will put it this way, justification provides for our salvation. Justification qualifies us for salvation. Sanctification is a good principle, but it does not qualify us for heaven. Is that true? Is that what the Bible teaches? Are we justified by faith? How many believe we're justified by faith? Where's it? Is there, is there some that don't believe that we're justified by faith? If we believe the Bible, we'd have to believe that, wouldn't we? But so often, we seem to think we're sanctified a different way. The Bible is too rich in making it clear that we can't be saved without sanctification. Let's go over to 2 Thessalonians, chapter 2. Very powerful text. I shared this last night when we were talking about the banner of truth on a different theme, but let's look at it here. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to what? Chosen to what? To salvation. Through sanctification of the spirit and belief in the truth. I don't know how anyone can say from the word of God that sanctification does not contribute to our salvation. I believe it's because we accept the Roman Catholic view that sanctification is good works. Of course our good works contribute nothing to the basis or merit of salvation. But sanctification does. Why? Because the sanctification is like, the, like justification. It is not our good works. It is a work of God through Jesus Christ. And many Seventh-day Adventists are being caught up in this false understanding and therefore they're willing to say salvation hinges wholly on justification. Not denying some good aspects of sanctification but they're saying it has nothing to do with our salvation. And this is becoming a, a terrible um, problem and some of the most pervasive and persuasive arguments now today are built upon that. But they're not built upon the word of God. 
I talked on the phone for a couple of hours to a man or a minister recently that is putting this out and is probably the most articulate writer on this topic. And I, I want to get a bottom line of what does this mean as far as he's concerned. And I asked if he believed that everyone that will be saved will have lived up to all the light that they have from God. Some mightn't have as much light as others, but they've lived up to it all. And in the end, he had to say no. I don't believe that everyone that is saved has lived up to all the light that they know. Well, that's a very dangerous concept. I read that salvation is today what it has always been, perfect obedience to the law of God. That's pretty plain, isn't it? Perfect obedience to the law of God. I look then at this justification and sanctification principle. If we come over to Romans chapter 5, it starts off with therefore being justified by what? Faith we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now no one questions that. If I talk to a Protestant evangelical or reformed protestant they agree that we're justified by faith no one doubts that really the correct way of saying it i think is the better one that we use this morning we're justified by grace through faith that's i think the clearer presentation of it we're justified by grace through faith now, what about sanctification? Well, sanctification is plain too. Acts 26. This gets us away from this Roman Catholic legalistic concept of sanctification. It is because so many hold to what is really a Roman Catholic view of sanctification that then they say we can't put that together with justification in the gospel of salvation. But listen... Acts 26, 18, to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance amongst them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. The words of Jesus to Paul on the road to Damascus. Listen. We're saved by grace through faith. We're justified by grace through faith. We're sanctified by grace through faith. Can you see why they are indivisible and to split them apart is to destroy them? I don't care how good and, and high you might say sanctification is. If you do not understand it as part of the saving acts of Jesus Christ, you do not understand the gospel of salvation. But remember, it's not the Roman Catholic view of sanctification, which is sacramentalism or good works. After all, I, I can't blame Luther. When you had Tetzel going through Germany and selling these abominable indulgences where you not only could be forgiven for the sins of the past or the present, you could actually buy indulgences that would give you a pardon for the sins of the future. 
as it were, an open cheque. You have now paid your dues. You can go and commit any sin or crime that you want to commit. Wouldn't that be an abomination? How would you feel? And Luther, seeing that, naturally revolted against it and said, that's not part of salvation. That's not part of the gospel. But he didn't understand. He didn't come to an understanding of the true principles of sanctification. They weren't what Catholicism taught. They were entirely different from what the Catholic Church had taught. And now we need, as Seventh-day Adventists, as God's people, to understand that the principles of salvation are what are contained in the Word. We're not justified by sacraments. We're not justified by good works. We're not sanctified by sacraments. We're not sanctified by good works. We are sanctified by faith in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour. And then when you come over to, back to um, Romans chapter 5, when we come down to verse 9, it says, much more than being now justified by his blood. I suppose if we put these texts together, the nicest way I can think, or the fullest way I can think to put justification is that we are justified by grace through faith in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ or the blood of Jesus Christ. But if sanctification is also a part of salvation, then it must be also the purchase of Christ, Christ's blood. Would that be true? And that's indeed what the Bible confirms. We're not sanctified by works. We're sanctified by the blood of Jesus. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 12. Hebrews 13, 12 puts it this way. That wherefore Jesus also that he might sanctify the people with his own blood. Now... In Romans, Paul says we're justified by his blood. Over in Hebrews, he says we're sanctified by his blood. If you come back to Roman, uh, uh, Hebrews 10.10, 10, it uh, confirms this. It says simply, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Can you see, brethren and sisters, when we go to the Bible, we find that our justification is just as riveted on the uh, sacrifice of Christ as our sanctification, and our sanctification is our justification. It's not a principle of legalism. Now, there are those today saying that all humanity... Now, you, can you imagine this? was justified or saved on Calvary 2,000 years ago. All humanity were, were justified or saved because they don't think of sanctification, so all were justified or all were saved on Calvary 2,000 years ago. I wonder where you would find that in the Bible. I wonder where you would find it in any inspired writings. 
How could anyone have been justified? What does the word justified mean? What's it mean? Righteous. When you realize that it's the same root word as righteous. Now that meant people before... How could Christ declare Ahab and Jezebel to be righteous on Calvary? Would that make any sense? It would make God a liar. Those wicked people. Wicked Queen Athaliah. Haman. Oh, you could go through myriads of names, couldn't you? Why would anyone consider that Christ would teach or accomplish such a work? In fact, it, it is so plain from the Bible that not everyone was, sacri- uh, was um, saved at the same time 2,000 years ago. This afternoon I'm going to talk a little about the in Christ, the myths of the in Christ motif. There's some good, wonderful principles in them, but I want to compare them with Scripture. I want to give you just one of those texts now as a, a preview so you will understand that not everyone was saved 2,000 years ago at the same time. Paul makes that plain in Romans. In fact, it's right at the end of Romans. You know, strangely enough, when I, I quoted this text when we wrote this book. But it took a layman down in Southern California to suddenly wake me up to the full impact of the text. Um, Romans 16, verse 7. This is the kind of text you don't imagine would have deep theological overtones because it's the salutations at the end of the, the book. You'll notice it says, Salute Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen, and my fellow prisoners who are of note among you, among the apostles. Now notice the next words of Paul. Who were in Christ before me. Now if everyone as is being promoted in some of the theology that is facing us today, if everyone was in Christ on Calvary when Jesus died, then Paul and his relatives were in Christ together. But Paul doesn't say that. Paul says, these relatives of mine were in Christ before me. What's he mean? What is he saying there, brothers and sisters? He's saying, they accepted Jesus before I accepted him. Listen, brethren and sisters, you are never in Christ until you have accepted him. There is no question about that. And Paul, in this simple salutation, explodes this myth that all humanity was in Christ at the same time on Calvary. I don't know why these theologians don't go to the Bible. What is it about theologians that they've got to use their own imagination and their own thinking and theology and it takes them away rather than to the word of God? 
You think of how many times justification and sanctification are linked together in the Bible, especially in the New Testament. Um, and how critical it is for our salvation. I'm going to start with the most critical text because I can see our time is racing away from us and we have to finish in another few minutes. But let, let us look, if you have your Bibles there, to Revelation 22.11. Here is the decided final declaration of God discriminating between those who have been his faithful servants and those who have rejected the matchless claims of Jesus upon their lives. And here in the latter part of verse 11 it says, And he that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. What is this declaration talking about? Two things. Righteousness and holiness. Give me two other names. Justification and sanctification. This text is making the final declaration of the saved. This half of the text. The first half deals with the declaration for the lost. And you'll notice that these are justified sanctified people um, remember that interestingly enough in the Greek for some reason it's been translated this way but according to Strong's concordance two different words are used both for the two times righteous is used and the words holy let him that is dikaios be dikaiou still. Let he that is hagaios be hagaizo still. Using the normal, usual translation, this text would read, He that is righteous, let him be justified still. And he that is holy, let him be sanctified still. Does sanctification have no qualification for heaven? Or does it qualify us for heaven along with justification? Of course it does. Otherwise all we'd need to say, he that is righteous, let him be justified still. And that'd be the end of the matter. That's all that would matter. But God, when he is making his declaration of the saints, had to say they're both justified and sanctified. It's not they can be or will be or will be made. They are. He that is, they're already justified and sanctified. They have allowed the power of Jesus and the forgiveness of Jesus to ready them for the kingdom of heaven. Not a work that we can do. But I want to tell you, unless we totally submit to the Lord, we can't be justified or sanctified. Both are impossible 
without the total surrender to Jesus. This afternoon, when we go a little further, I want to talk about this issue of so-called forensic justification and justification by faith. What an important principle needs to be established there. You might be surprised to know that this comes straight out of evangelical Protestantism. I want you to know it's the hallmark of neo-Calvinism, not the hardcore Calvinism. There's that around too. But of neo, the new form of Calvinism that is becoming. And we are seeing some of our writers and some of our preachers excise it straight out of the neo-Calvinists in the very books they're reading that um, I have also had access to, it's exactly what these neo-Calvinists say. We don't need that in this church. We don't need that in our theology because we know it comes from a polluted stream of apostate Protestantism. It must not be taken on board. There is no way that God's people can be allowed to be deceived by broken systems. You know what happens, anyone that does any plumbing, if you have broken pipes, it immediately allows contamination to get into those pipes, doesn't it? Bacteria gets into it. And suddenly you've got uh, polluted water. We had that happen to us not that long ago at Heartland when there was a little problem with something open and suddenly we got a high bacterial count in our well water. We had to quickly find what was causing that high bacterial count. We soon found it, resolved the situation, the water came back to a high quality again. But that's what happens when we take on board that which is not from the fountains of truth. Now it only takes, and I want to indelibly places in your minds it only takes one error for you to be on the pathway of Satan I wrote to one of our theologians recently who is moving in this direction and I've set down 28 no 26 um, principles of the everlasting gospel the true everlasting gospel of Revelation 14.7 and I put the evangelical counterfeit for all those 26 ideas. And I said, the problem is you have part of both. I said, you look down that list. Yes, you're hanging to many of the everlasting gospel, but you've also intruded into your theology some of the evangelical gospel. The everlasting and the evangelical. And he, I said, now you've got terrible dissonance, but many of our people are so blind or so unconfirmed in their understanding of God's truth that they don't see yet the dissonance. But you're going to see it. And eventually you're going to have to do something about it to try and bring logic back into what you're saying. Because some of the things you're saying are inconsistent. Both truth and error... Both the evangelical gospel and the everlasting gospel are absolutely watertight logic. 
The only problem is evangelical Protestantism is not built upon the word of God. It's built on false premises, actually pagan premises. Now, it doesn't mean they're not logical. I said, I wish I could say that when people find this dissonance, they come back to the truth. But history does not smile kindly upon those that have accepted any errors. What they tend to do is bring another error in, like they did with Augustinian theology, until they got a watertight theology that was logical all the way through, but it was fully logical in its error, taken the false premises and brought everything to bear upon it. That was the problem. And so, brethren and sisters, this afternoon I want to go into those principles. I want to look at things like this in Christ motif. That might be something some of you don't know much about. But I want to show you how, to use, how that is being misused in God's church today. I want to take us through on this issue of forensic justification and let you see the problems that that is creating and how inconsistent it is with the word of God. There's only one justification. And that's justification by faith. If it's not by faith, it's not justification. That's how simple it is. And so I want us to look to Christ. He has provided everything necessary for our justification and sanctification and salvation. Do you believe that? And by faith or by grace through faith, we accept that. And day by day we commit our lives fully and completely to him. And I trust that not one of us will become led astray. This is the time of deception. This is deception time. But if we hold firmly to God's word and to his truth and righteousness, none need be deceived. The truth is clear and plain. God bless you. Our Father in heaven, in these days of test and trial, when every wind of doctrine will be blowing, when every insidious seed of truth, of error, will be planted within the framework of truth, O oh Lord, we pray that you will give us the full entrance of the Holy Spirit to lead us into the perfect truth of salvation, to the perfect understanding of Jesus our Lord and our Savior, and to understand the mighty gift of heaven in the saving acts that were fulfilled in the death of Jesus and in the present work of our heavenly high priest. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.